Well, take your Bible and open, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 32. This morning we're continuing the study uh, that we began to look at last week, uh, considering the Lord's Supper with one another. Uh, Last week we took up the latest problem uh, that the Apostle Paul was seeking to address in the church at Corinth. He opened up uh, this new section by saying, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And the divisions that were present in the church at Corinth were there for everyone to see. In the book of Jude, uh, Jude addresses the church, and he talks about hidden reefs uh, that were present in their love feasts, things that were uh, beneath the surface. They weren't immediately obvious, uh, but they were, there were rifts, and there were schisms, nevertheless, that were present in the church. Well, there was nothing hidden. There was nothing beneath the surface about what was happening in Corinth. Their divisions were glaring, and they were obvious. The rich and the powerful, the affluent, uh, they were keeping to themselves. They were eating the best food. They were sitting in the best places. The poor were left over on the side going hungry. Some were coming to worship, and they were getting drunk. Uh, The thing that made this all so very tragic Uh, was that this was all happening on the Lord's Day uh, as they were celebrating the Lord's table, no less, as they were coming together to to remember what was supposed to be a careful, solemn remembrance of the Lord's sacrificial death at the moment in their worship uh, that should have been the climax of, of their remembrance. They were at the most divided. You know, brothers and sisters, when we come and we partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, we are remembering our one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And as Corinth was going through the motions of that, uh, they were schismatic, and discord was everywhere for you to see. Well, the upshot of all of this, Paul says, is that they weren't eating the Lord's Supper. I mean, they were eating. They were filling their stomachs. But Paul says, what is happening here is so much against the heart of what the Lord's Supper is intended to to signify, what the Lord's Supper is intended by Christ uh, to represent, that it could not rightly be said that it was the Lord's Supper that they were observing. And so Paul brings them back to the words of institution. The problem that Corinth was facing wasn't that they had never heard the gospel. The problem that Corinth was facing wasn't that they had heard the gospel and that they had explicitly rejected it. The problem in Corinth was that the gospel that they knew, the gospel that they had once embraced, had stopped having an effect in their lives. It had stopped having a transforming effect on their manner of life Uh, The way that they lived, they were no longer growing in the faith. They weren't being transformed by what they heard. You may have had periods like that in your own life. You may be in a period like that right now where uh, the good news of Christ crucified, uh, this glorious message uh, which you have uh, professed with your mouth and you have believed upon in your heart, well, now it's like reading the back of a cereal box. 
It just doesn't do anything to your heart. And you may come to the table and, and you may hear the words of institution. You may hear those words read a week after week, but you're just going through the motions. It's just what you do to pass the time until you get to the next thing in, in, in the service. Uh, but it's, it's not having an effect on the way that you live. No longer does it, does it warm your heart with, with gratitude and worship. No longer does it thrill your soul and make you want to shout and sing to the God of your salvation. You, it's been a long time, perhaps, uh, since you have trembled with awe at what God has done in sending the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to take on flesh to walk among the people that he created, to be rejected by his own people, but most of all to suffer the painful, shameful death on a Roman cross. And so this is exactly where Paul brings them. He brings them back to the good news of the gospel, back to the good news that Christ's body and his blood has been given for us. Would you look at the text with me? Beginning in verse 23. Paul says, For I received... From the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So Paul begins by exhorting the church, exhorting the church to look up to Christ. He calls them uh, in this rehearsal of Christ's words to look afresh on their Savior and their Lord. And this is uh, Paul's habit uh, whenever the church is in need of transformation, which, by the way, is always the case. This is always the case. He reminds them, what, of the gospel that was preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. I said last week that whenever the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is riddled with sin, it's a sure sign that they have gotten away from the gospel. And so Paul points them to Christ, his person and work. He points them to what he will say in chapter 15, what he will describe as matters of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 
And that is what the, the supper is meant to keep before our eyes, that we might set the Lord in remembrance before us, ever before our eyes, that the personal work of Jesus Christ would be the, at the forefront of our spiritual vision always and forever, every day that we walk with him. So we look up to Christ. The Lord's Supper is also a time when we look around. We look around at the body of Christ. We remember that in, in this bread that we break, there is a picture of the fellowship that we share together within the body of Christ. Paul said in chapter 10, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Corinth, quite evidently, had forgotten that. They had forgotten that they were all part of one body. Well, the sacrifice of Christ, it secures fellowship with God, doesn't it? It brings us into right relationship with God. It gives us right standing with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, fellowship with the Father. But it also brings us into fellowship with one another. It brings us into fellowship with brothers and sisters. Jesus says in, 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 in Hebrews 1 that, that, that we have many brothers and sisters in, in the family of faith. From there, we look back to the death of Christ. We look back to the new covenant that was given in his blood. As we observe communion every week, we are reminded that, that man does not come to God saying, look, God, I, I have a deal that I'd like to strike. You know, I've worked out some terms that I think you'll be interested in. No, God takes the initiative. God takes the initiative and he condescends. He comes to earth in the personal work of his son. God is the one who establishes the terms of the covenant, the blessings that are attached, the, the parties that are involved in that covenant. And he gives his son to be the mediator. He gives his son to be uh, the representative head whose, whose perfect righteousness has everlasting bearing on everyone that he represents. Everyone that he represents before the, the father. All of his righteousness, all of his perfect sinless obedience is applied to us. Just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Paul says, so one act of righteousness has, leads to justification and life for all men. One of the things that, that Jesus' words in what we call the words of institution, when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, one of the things that tells us is that in the gospel, because of the shed blood of Christ, the people of God know where they stand. We know where we stand because of the new covenant, because of what Christ has done for us. If you lived in the Old Testament and you were a worshiper of Baal or Dagon, you never knew where you stood. The best that you could hope for is that by throwing some sacrifice before the image of your God, then maybe, maybe, you could appease their wrath for a little while. But you could never be too sure. You could never really know. You never really knew what your position was with regard to your relationship to the God that you worship. Well, that is not true in the Christian faith. When Christ makes a covenant with his people, we know where we stand. When Christ sheds his blood for us, we know 
that mercy can be found. We know that justification may be obtained as we look to him, as we believe on him, because it is all dependent on him. It's dependent on his body. It's dependent on his blood. I want you to listen uh, to the clear terms God's word speaks in, in first Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Do you see how God's word speaks? There is nothing tenuous. There's nothing uncertain. There's nothing that's left up in the air. It is all finished in Christ. We have assurance based on on his perfection, his substitution on our behalf. Jesus says, I will be merciful toward your iniquities. I will remember your sins no more. That's what the new covenant means for us. So we look back, we also look forward to the coming of Christ. Christ will come again, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We proclaim his death until he comes. The table reminds us of that. It reminds us of the blessed hope that what we will be uh, or that we, what we are now, let me look at my, my notes here. We are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he really is. The book of Revelation talks about the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, how they will cry out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That is what we will shout when Christ returns. Well, there is one more aspect that Paul draws out in our passage today that I would especially like to consider with you. And that is that we look within. That we look within to our sin We look within to our condition before the living God. Uh, Paul draws two big conclusions from what uh, Jesus says in the words of institution. And one we looked at last week relates to our, our relationships within the covenant community. You see that in verse 33. If God in Christ has welcomed us, so also are we to welcome those who Christ has welcomed into the family of God. We are to receive our brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's the force of the word wait, where Paul says, when you come together as a church, wait. The point is not just that everybody's in the room at the same time. The point is that we, we welcome one another with that spirit by which we have been welcomed into the family of God. Well, the second application you see in verses 27 to 32, where Paul talks about the manner in which we come to the table. The manner in which we come to the table. This is a harrowing passage in many respects. Many a believer has has read these words and had terror strike at their hearts. At the same time, on the other hand, there are some who have never, never really felt the weight of what these words uh, address of what, the, of what they say, who've never trembled at the message that it holds or, or, or maybe dismiss it. 
as something that surely doesn't happen today. Surely God wouldn't act in this way. Well, for those that have ears to hear, is it possible that we can, we can listen to what the Holy Spirit says in this text and not have some sense of holy fear wash over us? That, I'd submit to you, is the kind of response that we want to cultivate in our hearts as we hear uh, this text today. Holy fear. There, is a, there are a couple of errors I think we can fall into when we look at passages like this. One is, is inconsolable fear. But then there's also the error of, of casual dismissiveness. And, and this is a passage that addresses both, both of those errors. Paul speaks to both of those, those wrong approaches of inconsolable fear uh, but also of a casual dismissiveness. And we're going to look at both of them together. But first, I, I want you to turn your heart with me to, to what it says in verse 27 once again. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. The first thing I'd, I'd like for you to mark in your minds today is that it matters how we come. It matters how we come to the table. Congregation, there, there is a worthy manner to come, and there is an unworthy manner. Paul says that the one can be a means of grace in our lives, the other can be a means of guilt. In other words, it is possible that, that in our observation of the Lord's table, rather than, rather than serving to hallow the name of Christ, rather than being an, an opportunity to reverence Christ, to reverence his, his atoning work, it actually profanes the sanctity of what is being symbolically illustrated in the cup and in the bread, and actually causes us to incur guilt concerning the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So immediately, we are confronted with the fact that, that what we are doing when we partake of the Lord's Supper is no dead memorial. It's not empty ritualism. This is a real encounter with the living God, however you come. Paul expounded on this if you were with us back in chapter 10. Uh, he, he says in, in chapter 10 and verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And that word participation, if you remember, is koinonia. It's the same word for fellowship. It speaks to the, to the spiritual communion we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what this ordinance proclaims, that we have a share, we have a participation in what Christ has provided for by his sacrificial death. Now it's evident that the Corinthians were abusing the Lord's Supper in as much as they were overlooking those spiritual realities. That's the idea behind partaking in an unworthy manner. Now there's a danger, friends, here that, that we have to head off right at the pass as we begin to hear, hear these words, as we begin to, to think upon the idea of worthiness and unworthiness, and the danger is this, that we begin to think in terms of our merit. 
that we begin to think in terms of how deserving we are. That is not, church, what Paul is talking about here. The idea is not that we could ever begin to think to ourselves that we are somehow worthy of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, the very idea contradicts itself. Who is the body and blood of Christ for? It's for needy sinners. It's for those who are unworthy. Friends, it's for those who have, who have come to see their wretchedness, who have come to see their unworthiness and cling to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They cling to his body and his blood as their only plea before the Father, as the only way that they can be reconciled to God. Now compare that to what's happening in Corinth. Compare that to the situation that we have at hand in this passage. What was happening there? There's a careless spirit. There's a cavalier attitude in their handling of the Lord's table. The whole exercise was treated with triviality. And in doing so, they showed contempt for it. In fact, Paul Paul said earlier, if you're going to behave this way in the household of God, just go home. Or do you despise the church of God? To act in that kind of manner is to be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. So it matters how we come. Now, it is with this truth in view that Paul spends the rest of this section emphasizing the need for spiritual preparation before we come to the table. That's the teaching of this text, that there is a need for spiritual preparation on the part of God's people before receiving the Lord's Supper. Now, under that heading, the need for preparation, Paul gives three main points of instruction. First, in verse 28, he says this, let a person examine himself then. Let a person examine himself. This is the answer uh, to the problem of partaking unworthily. Let a person examine himself before you take that bread and put it in your mouth, before you take the cup to your lips, God's word calls every believer, every participant, uh, to use the language of chapter 10, to engage in a personal examination of himself. Now the question is immediately raised. What are we looking for? As we examine ourselves, what are we looking for? And I want to look at the broader context with you. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 18. Paul says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So looking first, just at the immediate context here, uh, Paul has been prodding them, even as he's issuing this correction, to look for the evidence of their genuineness. He says, in in so many words, this this spirit of divisiveness, this spirit of discord, it may prove to be indicative of a false profession if it is not repented of, if it is not turned from. Discord is not the work of the spirit. This isn't the evidence of God's grace. So where is the evidence? That's the first application for us. As we think about walking in obedience to this command, let every person 
examine himself. We're asking ourselves the question, is there harmony between the profession of my lips and the manner of my life? In that context, the Corinthians might begin to ask themselves, as they're listening to Paul's letter read to them, am I committed to the unity of the body, the way God's word commands me to be? Have I been party to this kind of sin? Have I learned of Christ to take up my cross, to follow him, to deny self, to, to prefer others? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see, God calls us into the kingdom, but then we are exhorted and encouraged and charged to walk in a manner worthy of our God. Having believed in Christ's power to save, are we following him? Are we following him in his sufferings and death? Has the world been crucified to me and I to the world? Am I reckoning myself dead to sin and alive to God? As the the Holy Spirit, week after week, sitting under the preaching of God's word, begins to to reveal my sin to me. Am am, Am I going to Christ seeking forgiveness, seeking his grace to walk in repentance? Am am, Am I cleansing out the old leaven? as Paul commands uh, the church in Corinth. And so you see here that that the emphasis in in the process of self-examination is not introspection. Self-examination is not spiritual navel-gazing. The idea here is not that you have an obligation to search out every corner of your heart before you can come. Do we believe that we can do that? Do we believe that we know our hearts fully? No. God searches our hearts, but we don't even know ourselves fully. The thing that sets the worthy partaker apart from the unworthy partaker is not that one has sin and the other doesn't, but that one, having examined themselves, acknowledges their sin, confesses their sin, forsakes their sin as they look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what self-examination is is about. I think that's proven by what we see in, in verse 20, 28 as he continues, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You take, you take stock of your life and then what? You eat. You eat of the bread. You drink of the cup. The expectation of this passage is that a person after examining himself will proceed to eat. He will come to the Lord's table. Now, now, brothers and sisters, that is extremely telling as you think about who Paul is writing to. I mean, the Corinthians, they are the poster child for bad problems in the church, in the, in the New Testament. And yet Paul says to them, examine yourselves and then so eat. Come to the table. Receive from the table of, of God's grace. There were serious problems in that church, and yet Paul does not just bar them from the table, out of hand. There may be times in our lives when, when God shows us some particular sin that we need to, to deal with first before we partake. There may be times when, when we need to first, we, we leave our gift at the altar, first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then you come back 
Then, then you partake. But the ordinary pattern isn't that we would look within and find a reason to abstain. But rather, we would take inventory of our lives. We, we, we would consider our walk. We would come face to face with our pressing need for the, for the mercy of God. And we would confess our sin. We would confess our hypocrisy and renew our faith as we come to the fountain of God's grace. I want you to hear something J.C. Ryle says about this text. He says, let us leave the passage with serious self-inquiry as to our own conduct with respect to the Lord's Supper. Do we turn away from it when it is administered? If so, how can we justify our conduct? It will not do to say that it is not a necessary ordinance. To say so is to pour contempt on Christ and declare that we do not obey him. He has commanded us to receive from the table. It will not do to say that we feel unworthy to come to the Lord's table. To say so is to declare that we are unfit to die and unprepared to meet God. This gets back to those, those errant approaches I mentioned earlier of inconsolable fear, of casual dismissiveness. If you just consider what Paul says in Romans 7 and 8 for a minute, some of us have a particular kind of conscience, uh, the kind of conscience that is prone to what we call morbid introspection. You obsess over your faults. Uh, your conscience is always accusing you. You doubt your motives. Uh, Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He describes it as putting your soul on a plate and dissecting it. You equate assurance with faith with measuring up to standards that you set for yourself. If your conscience tends in that direction, you might read a passage like Romans 7. You might hear Paul say, I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You might, you might come to the table and you, you hear Paul's words say, oh, wretched man that I am. And you think, that is me. I don't deserve to be here. And that is one truth. But if that is the only thing that you keep before your eyes, if Romans 7 is the only thing you ever meditate upon on, you may be left in a, in a state of such despair that you never get to Christ. You can't even see him. Your whole vision is obscured by your own guilt, your own sin, how unworthy you are. Now, on the other hand, if the only thing you ever say to yourself is Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Who is to condemn? And you may go about the Christian life with another kind of lopsidedness the kind of imbalance where you are totally oblivious to the call for holiness, a kind of libertinism that is unconcerned to put away sin, unconcerned to strive after the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So Christian preaching, Christian living, must always keep these truths in their proper biblical balance. The idea of examining ourselves is one of those ways that we can work to, to hold that balance. And, and I will belabor the point here. The idea is not that a child of God might look within and find himself unfit to come or 
try to, to, to go away and do something to get yourself ready before you come back. Brothers and sisters, where are you going to go? What are you going to do if you're in need of cleansing apart from coming to Christ? Apart from confessing your sin, receiving his mercy. That brings us to the second point of instruction here. You examine yourself. Number two, you discern the body. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, again, Paul underscores this reality that we are not at liberty to look at the institution of the Lord's Supper as something that can be entered into casually. In fact, he says something that may really startle us in verse 30. He makes the connection between spiritual negligence and physical health. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, this does not mean that every instance of physical illness or death can be connected to an abuse of the Lord's table or even connected to some particular sin. But don't let the qualifications get you away or prevent you from hearing the gravity of what God's word is saying here. Look at how seriously the Lord regards the honor of his son. This echoes what Paul said again in chapter 10. Look back at chapter 10 and verse 8. Paul Paul talks about the wilderness generation in Israel, how with most of them God was not pleased. And and then he says this in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You think about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, how they, they lied to the Holy Spirit when they sold a piece of property and they came and they left only a, a part of it of the part of the proceeds at the, at the feet of the, of the apostles, and God struck them dead. In the space of three hours, the congregation was, was carrying out two dead bodies that had fell under the hand of God's judgment. What was their transgression? They made a mockery out of the worship of God. Well, here Paul says the same thing is happening in Corinth. Some are weak, some are, some are ill, some have died as a result of their, their profanation of the Lord's Supper. Does it shock us to consider that a holy God would act in such a way to preserve the sanctity of his name, to protect his worship from being defiled even if it required taking out his own people? Does that shock us? If that is surprising to you, it's because we have too small a view of God, too casual a view of a thrice holy God, too too casual a view of, of the sobriety that his worship demands. Does the church of God today, I ask you, have too small a view of God? Do we have too casual a view 
of God. If that is the case, what will arrest that kind of a downward spiritual trend? What, what will reverse that kind of spiritual declension in the church of the Lord Jesus today? The knowledge and fear of God, the preaching of, of God's character, the reality of his awesome holiness, that he is a righteous judge. Paul told, told Corinth, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, church, there, there is a right kind of standing and there's a wrong kind of standing. There, there's the kind of standing that we, we rejoice to sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. There's the kind of standing that comes by faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. But then there's a kind of standing that takes for granted our position with God. There, there's a kind of standing that assumes that we're okay uh, the kind of standing, quote-unquote, that is that's devoid of gratitude. It's devoid of uh, worship and spirit and truth. It's devoid of holy fear. It's the kind of standing that, is, that has grown numb uh, to the threat of what is being declared to us today, that God disciplines and judges, yes, even his own people. That's a false kind of standing. Hebrews 12 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Beloved, this is no ordinary meal. What transpires here is not dead memorial. It isn't empty uh, ritualism. Do you know why we have rituals? Do you, do you know why we have traditions? Young people, children, do you know why your parents celebrate your birthday? Why you have a tradition uh, in your family of celebrating in your, your birthday uh, in some way? Well, it's because we realize that some things are so important, some things are so significant and precious in our lives that they deserve to be marked out in a special way. They deserve to be commemorated in a way that sets them apart from the ordinary affairs of life. That's exactly what we do every week as we come together. Here you have the hinge point of human history, a single offering that is perfected for all time, those that are being sanctified. And we share a meal together every week. We share a meal that holds forth the prospect of blessing, but also of judgment, of grace, but also of guilt. And if you're here and you, you come to the table uh, because you, only, you, you just want to fill your belly, as was the case in Corinth, or um, you're going to have a hard time doing that here, uh, but, but in our context, maybe, uh, maybe it's more likely that you're inclined to come because you see everyone else around you come, and you think that, well, it's just the thing to do. It's, it's, it's just, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be a part here and, and go ahead and partake. Or maybe uh, you're inclined to think of the Lord's table as some kind of mechanistic thing. And you say to yourself, well, as long as I go through the motions, as long as I get to the table every week and I, I eat the bread and I drink the cup, I can live however I want. Well, no, Paul says. You eat and drink the judgment of God judgment on yourself. So what are we to do 
to avoid the judgment of God. We are to discern the body. In other words, we are to acknowledge in our hearts what sets the body of Christ apart as utterly unique. That's what the word discern means here. The idea of discernment uh, in, in modern Christianity today has taken on a mystical meaning. Discernment, brothers and sisters, does not mean that you have the ability uh, to look behind something. Uh, It does not mean that God gives you a special ability to see something that other people can't see. It does not mean that you have some kind of secret knowledge. Discernment, biblically understood, refers simply to having the wisdom and the understanding necessary to discriminate, to make a proper assessment to assign the proper value to something. I I want to show you this from God's word, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So the discernment is the ability to approve what is excellent. Excellent. Well, you see then what Paul is getting at here in our text. To discern the body is to approve the most excellent of them all. It is to honor Christ the Lord as as holy. Some some translations say that you recognize the body. In other words, you recognize the sanctity and the worth of the body and blood of Christ. It's another way of saying that you come rightly. You come in faith. You come uniting yourself with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. One application here is that young children should not participate in communion prior to their confession of Christ as Lord, prior to their public profession of Christ in baptism. Those who have not believed on Christ should not partake. And church, it's right for those who have not to feel their separation from the Savior at the table until the, until the time comes when they discern the body, until they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and are saved to the glory of God the Father. If you, whether you're a child or an adult, cannot affirm what is being said here, Christ's substitutionary death in your place, that his body and blood was for you, if you have not believed on him, if you are not trusting in the promise of his return, you should not partake, lest you eat and drink judgment on yourself. But you know, the the principle applies not just to the lost, but to those who know the Lord Jesus, to those who have been redeemed, which really is is the focus of Paul's warning here. If you've been united with Christ, a part of the preparation that is enjoined upon you is that prior to observing communion, you discern the body. You call to mind the price that has been paid to rescue you out of sin and judgment and death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you examine yourself. You discern the body. Finally, you judge yourself truly. Look at verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned 
along with the world. What does it mean to judge yourself truly? In simple terms, it's to agree with God's assessment of sinful man. It's to accept the judgment God's word makes of mankind in its fallen state. To judge yourself truly is to say to yourself, I am spiritually bankrupt. Apart from the righteousness of Christ applied to my account, and the body and blood of Christ is exactly what I need. It's exactly what I need. There's one thing that I could impress upon your heart today. It would be that the table is for sinners. The table is for those who know that they have a need. It's for those who who recognize their wretchedness. Those who are well of no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So what judgment do you make of yourself? What judgment do you make of yourself today? Are you prepared to confess that, that you have a desperate need to be delivered from the body of sin, to be cleansed of all of your unrighteousness? Do you know your unworthiness? Do you know how unfit you are to come to the Father apart from the Lord Jesus? What did the the prodigal son say when he came to his senses? He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That young man had a right estimation of himself. He understood himself rightly. He judged himself truly. But you know what? It it wasn't his, his worthiness that his reception was based upon. It wasn't his worthiness that his status in the family was based upon, but what? The Father's mercy, the Father's grace. First John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The table is for sinners. So come. Come in full view of your wretchedness, but also come in full view of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Come in full view of the fountain of grace that is made available in his blood. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a savior. We are full of sin. Christ is full of mercy. I just want to say in closing, there there are some of you here today who have never received the mercy of God given in Jesus Christ. You, you, You don't know what it is to be cleansed of your sin. The reason for that is that you've never judged yourself truly. You've never looked at yourself in the mirror of God's word and seen yourself the, the way God's word describes you in your utter need. And so you've gone through life deceiving yourself, thinking that you're okay, thinking that you don't need to worry about anything, or th- maybe thinking that you can deal with things some other time. You can do business with God at some other point in time. And the consequence of all of this is that you are still carrying around the guilt of your sin. You're still laboring under the condemnation that your sins justly deserve. Friends, God already knows it all. 
He already knows everything that is in your heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So why do you delay? Why do you wait? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Merciful God, what a great God you are. Lord, we thank you for the wise and gracious way that you deal with us in your word. God, for the way that you have provided for our upbuilding in the church. Lord, that we might be strengthened in holiness and love, that we might bring you honor and glory the way you have purposed us to do. God, I pray that you would take this word that we've heard today, use it, God, in our lives. Use it to to comfort the afflicted, to afflict the comfortable. God, we pray that we would not be comfortable in our sin, but Lord, that we would run to the one who gives rest to our souls, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, Lord, teach us what we need to do. God, teach us how to respond to your word. God, that we might live in in dependence on you and in humility before your face. Lord, that we might bring you glory in everything that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.